Hey, everybody. It's Allie. And welcome to our YNR chat for Sunday, February 17th, 2013. I hope that you all survived the great Valentine's storm of 2013 <laughs> that wreaked havoc across Genoa City. Uh, snowy roads, icy conditions, and blackouts forced lovers, former lovers, and potential lovers into compromising situations all week. <laughs> I have to admit... The whole, the radio announcements thing was kind of cheesy. Everybody's listening to a news reporter on the radio saying, uh, it's going to be cold and snowy out here, so you better stay inside with your loved one and snuggle up. It was so stupid. I, it was it was cheesy, I, I have to say that. And there was a lot of um, outdoor scenes, like scenes of, of blizzardy streets. Uh, and I thought, okay, there was a lot of those. We get it. You don't need to keep forcing it down our throats. There's a blizzard. Enough said. But I did think that they did a really good job of showing the snow outside of all of the sets. That was cool. There was snow blowing and trees moving around in the wind and pretty much all of the sets for the whole week. And that was cool. That was impressive. I did enjoy that. And I enjoyed the whole thing. It, it created some very interesting situations, which we will need to talk about in detail, of course. Uh, first up, Adam and Sharon. They are spending a lot of time together right now, you know, for business. <laughs> Nothing more than business there, of course. Now, last week, Adam made it his business to kiss Sharon. He planted a big old kiss on her right in the middle of the office. And clearly, Sharon is torn. It makes her uncomfortable. I think, in all honesty, both Adam and Sharon are torn in very different ways. Sher you know, Well, Adam is in love with two women. There's just no two ways about it. And Sharon knows that. She knows that he has feelings for both of them, but she doesn't want to get hurt. And on top of that, she doesn't want to do anything that's going to jeopardize her mental health. Although, side note, completely irritated with the Victor switching Sharon's medication thing. Victor called Mason over to his house or his condo this week to scold him for not switching the pills yet, acting like Mason is some kind of traitor scumbag because he has a conscience and doesn't want to hurt Sharon. Victor was all, do you know who helped me to get where I am today? No one! That's right, I'm Victor Newman, and I'm the everything, and you are the nothing. And if you don't do this task for me, you will never get anywhere in life. That's very the vibe, as if Mason is doing something wrong by not messing with some, with a poor, very nice woman. It's ridiculous. But that hasn't happened yet. The, the medication switch hasn't happened yet. I really hope that it doesn't. And until then, the pull is there between Adam and Sharon. They are getting very cozy in public. It's odd because only maybe two weeks ago, they were very hesitant to go out into public together. They didn't want anyone to get the wrong idea. And now here they are, cozy out in public at the athletic club, Sharon looking bright, bold, and beautiful on Valentine's Day in her red outfit, and Adam making goo-goo eyes at her over the table. Chelsea happens to be there at the same time, sees them, sees how cozy and comfortable they are, and it turns her stomach. She has in the past had a reaction that she just wanted to run away from it, but now she's a little more established. She's got going on her fashion business, and she's not going to budge just because Adam and Sharon are there. So Adam finally sees her and goes over to try to talk to her, to try to mend fences, and he's 
still trying to get through to her to get his relationship back and she's still shutting him down she doesn't want to have anything to do with him and she furthermore doesn't really appreciate his intrusion on her life he's constantly trying to make suggestions about her and the business he's trying to offer his support and she doesn't want it she wants to do this on her own. And she tells him that. Send him away. And he is still trying. I think Adam is very lonely. I think Sharon is and has always been his first choice. But there was a comfort with Chelsea that he misses. He misses her in his life and in his home. And he goes back to the office and puts her picture in the drawer. Although he's still wearing his wedding ring. I don't know if she is. Did you have you guys notice? I, I would assume that she's taken her wedding ring off. But if you guys, anyone's noticed that, you'll have to leave me a comment and let me know. But after he goes back to his office, he even calls her. And he, he tells her to be safe because the storm is coming. And he clearly cares about her. He wants Chelsea in his life. But Sharon is the one who's there right now. She's with him every day. They have daily contact, so many moments of excitement over business that could so easily turn into excitement in the naughty way. (laughs) In fact, Sharon brings a report into Adam's office and sits down on the couch with him and is reading the report to him. It's a report that she's prepared, and she's sitting right next to him, just holding up the report for him to read it, which is so ridiculous. Adam can't pick up the report and read it to himself? I mean, but all I did was give her an opportunity to get close with him with her cleavage exposed ever so slightly. (laughs) Come on! It's like the oldest trick in the book. And it's odd because she has... With her lips, she's saying no, but with her body, she's saying, yes, come and get it. (laughs) And she is constantly creating situations to be with him. She goes out to Adam's mansion to deliver some papers to his house in the middle of this blizzard storm. That's so unnecessary. Whatever was in those papers, it could certainly have waited until the following day. She could have emailed the damn report to him, but she didn't. She goes out to be with him while he's all alone, and mm, power outage. (laughs) It created, it it forced them into a a mood lighting. (laughs) Oh, please. You are not fooling me, Sharon. That trip was more about the Valentine's card that you happen to have in your purse for Adam than it was about any kind of papers or any kind of report or any kind of business. And inside the card that she just happened to have for him, she was with him all day at work, by the way. She couldn't give him his Valentine's card at work. No, she brings it with her to his house at night in this mood lighting. (laughs) Oops, we're snowed in together. And inside the card was some kind of quote about friendship. Friendship? Please. Sharon, we all know that you're still in love with him. She's admitted it to the therapist and to herself. Everybody knows she still is in love with Adam. And Adam is still in love with her. (laughs) After he got the Valentine's card, (laughs) he decided to go into the kitchen and make her a peanut butter and jelly and banana sandwich. And oh no, that's not all. It wasn't just a sandwich. Adam cut the sandwich into a heart shape. (laughs) Can you even believe it? (laughs) I am telling you guys, it was over the top. And then, oh yeah, he told her, To wish upon the Valentine's star. Make a wish upon the Valentine's star. And it created this magical little moment. My goodness. If If this got any more syrupy, I would order a stack of pancakes to go with it. It is almost over the top. And of course, after 
Sharon makes her wish. Adam goes in for his move and he just scoops her up and passionately kisses her. And they're, she's kissing back. It's like, oh, yes, we both wanted so much. And I would not be surprised if Monday's show opened up with Adam and Sharon in bed together. It would not even shock me at all. I think that's exactly where this is headed. Um, unfortunately, I like it. So unfortunately... I'm going to have to rain on the parade here by having to announce that Chelsea is confirmed pregnant. Mm. What if Adam sleeps with Sharon tonight and gets her pregnant too? And then both Chelsea and Sharon are pregnant. (laughs) Can you even imagine? That would be some classic soap opera stuff right there. But I don't know. For now, only Chelsea is pregnant. She so did not want to acknowledge the possibility at all. In fact, it was Chloe who had to make her face it. Chelsea's getting nausea all over the place, and Chloe is the one that realized that that's exactly what it is, forced Chelsea to go out, take a pregnancy test, and it's positive. I hate this. (laughs) I'm very upset that she's pregnant, and I don't know why... I didn't think of it weeks ago that this is where it's headed, but I, I don't know. I feel like as soon as um, Chelsea tells Adam that she's pregnant, Adam will tell Sharon and Sharon will start to pull away because she'll go into martyr mode and want to give Chelsea and Adam a chance to work out their relationship because it was ha- losing a baby that had torn them apart in the first place. So now this is like a do-over in a way. And I just, I think that that's, that Sharon is going to pull away to give them that opportunity. Although I'm wondering at the kind of end of Friday's show is when Chelsea was realizing that she was pregnant as simultaneously Adam and Sharon are kissing in his house. I'm wondering if Chelsea is going to go to the house to tell Adam that she's pregnant and walk in the door and find them making love. Kane is totally crushing on Chelsea right now. I don't think that he realizes that that's what he's doing, but... Uh, At the same time, Lily doesn't seem to realize what's going on with Tyler. She seems to be completely clueless to the fact that he's flirting with her and totally into her. So I, I, it's like little by little, this couple is drifting apart and I don't really even know why. They haven't been married that long. There's no major crisis that's going on. They're both just... Restless, I guess, or they both don't realize what's happening. It's weird timing. I don't know, but Kane persists in helping Chelsea to get this job at Jabot, and it's clearly causing rift in the workplace and in the family. Yet he keeps going for it. He says that he sees something in Chelsea and that he wants to give her a chance to shine the way he was given a chance to shine. He was a bartender that, you know, because of uh, Catherine, I think it was Catherine and Jill, he, you know, just got into this corporate job, I think because of Jill, right? Well, he wants to apparently kind of do the same, give Chelsea the same chance that he had, but there was a meeting this week between Neil and Lily and Kane where Neil tried to let Lily be the swing vote. Like, okay, Kane and I are having a disagreement on to whether or not we need to bring on an inexperienced designer or if, as we're launching this business, we need to go with someone who has a little more experience and Lily breaks the tie and says, it makes more sense to me that we go with someone who is experienced. So she sides with Neil and they both kind of shut Kane down and in a way he agrees to it. He doesn't like it, but he sort of agrees to it. And then he goes off and has a meeting with Chelsea again. So it's weird. It's weird how he just continues. And uh, just like a, a side note, I picked up a note during the week that Lily doesn't seem to like Chelsea. Lily has a problem with Chelsea for one reason or another, and I can't remember. 
there's must be some history there that I'm not remembering. But why is it that Lily doesn't like Chelsea? Is it because of Lily's relationship with Billy? Is it that because, you know, I mean, everything that went down, Chelsea came into town and she was a pariah. And now all of a sudden she's genius. And I don't know if Lily's still remembering the circumstance that she came into town on. Is that it? I'm not entirely sure. But Chelsea isn't coming on to Kane at all. Certainly not like how Tyler is coming on to Lily. Kane has blatant, obvious, clear reason to be not liking Tyler. But Chelsea hasn't really done anything to Lily. I, I think Chelsea finds Kane attractive, but she's certainly not coming on strong. And I, and I think that she acknowledges that he's attractive, but like, who wouldn't? It's sort of when you've got a hot, sexy husband, obviously women are going to notice him. And I would think you should be used to that. But I have to reluctantly admit that the Kane and Chelsea scenes have kind of made me re-interested in Kane. Like, maybe I got used to him being all sexy with Lily, and now I'm seeing him sexy in a whole new way. And it's very appealing to me. And I mean, in the long run, I do like Lily and Kane together, but I will admit that there is a little something to the Kane and Chelsea thing that I wasn't expecting to feel that of that way about him but they're having their little meeting at the athletic club and it's just so fun and light and Kane has got this huge smile on his face and I'm just thinking about what's going on underneath his suit like for the first time in forever I'm thinking I just want to peel off those layers and see what's underneath and it even occurred to me this week that I had done a video a long 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 time ago where we talked about the men of Genoa City and whether they wear boxers or briefs. And it occurred to me this week that I really think that Kane probably wears bikinis. <laughs> what was I thinking? I probably said boxer briefs or something way back in the day, but I can see Kane like rocking a tiny, tiny pair of leopard print <laughs> bikinis. Like, can't you just see it? Take a moment and imagine his hunky body and he's probably wearing like a leopard print bikini uh, man panty. <laughs> but, you know, the point is this, whatever's going on with Chelsea has kind of got me thinking about Kane again. And I, I appreciate that. Uh, now, at the same time that they're having this meeting, Tyler is at the bar, and he overhears them. And he leaves the athletic club, goes back to Jabot, and mentions to Lily that Kane was there with Chelsea. And I... This is after the, Lily and Neil and Kane had this meeting where they decided they weren't going to use Chelsea, and now Lily's hearing that he's gone off and he's having a meeting with Chelsea? Well, that rang some bells in her mind. And I don't think that Tyler did that on purpose. I, 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 he mentioned it in passing. He had no way of knowing about the meeting or whether or not they were using Chelsea. That's not even his area that he's working on. So I don't think he knew that that was going to create a problem, but it did. Lily was immediately jealous and annoyed. And she tried to be like, well... Maybe he just didn't know. Maybe he didn't have the same takeaway from the meeting as we did. But she was definitely irritated. And when Kane comes back to Jabot, she confronts him. And it's one of the only times in kind of recent history, I guess, that Lily has really kind of been annoyed with Kane. She was like, you know, I heard you went with Chelsea. I mean, she wasn't happy about it. And Kane, like, he explained it away pretty quickly and talked about, you know, his reasons for wanting to give Chelsea a chance. But more importantly, he was immediately pissed off at Tyler. He clearly sees Tyler as a threat, whether it's passive or or, or not. He he 
doesn't like Tyler. He knows his game. He sees what he's up to. And I think that that's what's driving Kane away. He is probably upset that Lily doesn't see exactly what Tyler is. And so maybe in a passive, maybe unconscious way, that's why he's gravitating toward Chelsea. But the second Tyler walked into the room to ask Lily for her help with something, Kane snapped at him. He was really, in fact, rude. They were both a little rude. They're moody with Tyler. And, and this was like the one time where I don't think Tyler was intending to cause a problem. But it's Valentine's Day. It's their anniversary. And they just want to get out of the office and have their time together. And ever since Lily has been working, I sense that they have less time. You know, Lily's focus is now divided. It's not all about, oh, when Kane gets home, it's all about Kane. Now Lily has her own life. She has her own obligations. And it has caused a, a stress for them. But Lily decides, all right, Tyler, I'll help you with whatever this is that I need to help you with. Kane, go ahead to the athletic club. We'll meet there. We'll have our anniversary slash Valentine's Day amazing romantic time. And Lily will meet Kane there later. Well, after Lily and Tyler finish their meeting, Tyler goes out to his car. And guess what? The storm has zapped his car. His car will not start. And so he has to ask Lily for a ride to the athletic club where she's going anyway. And so it creates another situation, ultimately, where they're trapped together. Lily is driving her car. Tyler is in the passenger seat being all distracting. And actually... I have to admit, it was kind of cute. He had her gift for Kane in his hands, and he's shaking it like, oh, what is it? And like, and it was just funny. He said, some kind of glass animal, and like, he's juggling around a, a watch. It, it was actually uh, an enjoyable moment for Tyler. I didn't hate him in that moment. But <laughs> his joking around and being a clown caused Lily to her car to go off the road and she just slammed into I don't know if it was a snow drift or a tree or something but Lily's car went off the road it's snowing it's freezing they're trapped it was kind of cute because Tyler immediately said okay well I'm gonna get out of the car and go get some help and she was like no what are you kidding have you never seen any kind of movie or tv before you you'll get out of the car and you'll go for help and you'll freeze to death we're staying here trapped together <laughs> nothing to do but wait it out <laughs> with the radio on on valentine's day oh it's cold outside but it's hot in here everyone on team fen this week was pressuring Jamie to recant his testimony. And Summer confronted Jamie when I don't even know why or when she became on Fen's side. Fen was really creepy toward her, and she was begging Fen to stop harassing Jamie, he wouldn't listen, and Fen, Fen and Summer, like, had that weird falling out, and he approached her and sort of got a little aggressive with her, and yet, on the other hand, Summer had a really nice connection with Jamie when he went to find her in the storage locker, and it just seemed like... Fen and Summer's relationship had deteriorated, whereas Summer and Jamie were actually building a friendship, and he gave her that gift, and there was a little bit of love there, and now, out of the blue, Summer is in Jamie's face, acting like Jamie is the criminal. I don't even know why Summer assumed that Jamie was lying. She's telling him, you know, just because you've had bad things happen, no, just because you've had bad things happen to you doesn't mean that you should make other people suffer. <laughs> you gotta admit that was good. That was a good impression. I mean, like, I don't get that. I don't get that at all. And the entire time I'm watching this scene, I'm thinking, I'm sorry, but when did Jamie become the villain here? I don't get it. And I feel nothing for Summer at this point. At first, when she came on, I was like, yay, this because it was this is so much better than the old Summer. And yeah, she's kind of interesting. But then she disappeared off of the scene for 
I mean, weeks and weeks. And now all of a sudden I'm supposed to feel connected to her or feel sorry for her because she feels guilty about what happened with Jamie. I don't. And furthermore, I don't feel anything but contempt for Fen. Fen is now in, he's been a bully for weeks and weeks and weeks. And now for one week, he's a victim and I'm supposed to feel sorry for him. No, I'm sorry. No, Fen, before he knew that, you know, he, he had his night over spending his night in juvie. And after one night in juvie, Fen, Fen is like, I got to run. I got to get out of here. My dad's not on my side. He's so mean to me. Everything's wrong. And so he wants to get out. He, <laughs> in the middle of a storm, goes to hitchhike out of town. This kid is so ill-equipped to be hitchhiking on the highway. He has probably lived the most sheltered life. He's been probably in boarding school after boarding school to private school. This kid could probably not start a fire or camp out. He's probably never even been camping a day in his life. Now he's hitchhiking with no money. <laughs> it was ridiculous. And then Summer finds him, and there's this scene where they're both standing on the side of the road. She's trying to convince him not to leave, and he's trying to convince her to run away. And all I'm thinking is their outfits probably cost $1,000 each, what they're wearing. Summer's standing there in this beautiful, flowy scarf, and Finn's got his jacket on. And I thought, these rich kids <laughs> are running away from what? I don't know when their connection got rekindled. I thought, I, I don't know if I missed something or what, but if I was Summer, I wouldn't go across the street with him, let alone run away from him, like, or run away with him. Fen may not have tried to kill Jamie, but he still harassed him hardcore. He still picked on him. The kid is troubled. Fen is troubled. And if you ask me, Fen is 10 times a worse person than Jamie. And yet Jamie is the one who wants to kill himself. So horrible scene this week. Jamie is back on that rooftop, standing on the edge, looking down Wanting to jump, wanting to just end it all. I mean, after this conversation with Summer, where she told him he was a horrible person, he's looking down, thinking, what is my life even worth? He just wants to jump and end it all. When, thank goodness, Paul Hero shows up on the scene, and he's trying to talk Jamie down, trying to let him know that he's not alone and that there are people who care about him. And Jamie actually confessed to Paul that he did lie about Fen having pushed him. That wasn't it at all. In fact, when Jamie had fallen off the roof before, it wasn't a fall. It was a suicide attempt. And now here he is just wanting to finish the job, just wanting to do it ag again. And Paul, thank goodness, talked him down from the ledge, and it was such an emotional scene. I loved it. I love Doug Davidson, and it's such a throwback to the amazing scenes that we had had seen between Paul and Ricky, and all of that just really rekindled my love of, of Paul, and now here we are again. Paul is so good under pressure, and he's so warm and caring and trying to help this poor kid, and it really just made me realize that Paul watched his son fall to his death. And now here he is seeing this, uh, this, poor, this poor kid who is low in confidence and doesn't have a family and is just all in all underprivileged, almost going to jump and fall to his death. So that was a horrible moment for Paul, but just a dynamic scene, absolutely dynamic scene. And I keep thinking, oh, can Paul please just adopt Jamie? That would be amazing. It would help, like, Paul redeem his parenting skills. You know, he's carrying a lot of guilt about what happened with his own son. This would give him a fresh start, a way to, a way to, to, to work it out. And for both of them, it would help both of them. Don't you think? We need to start a petition. Have Paul adopt Jamie. <laughs> 
Well, I, you know, all in all, I am glad that the that Jamie's lie didn't stick. I am glad that that whole thing did not drag out because I just didn't. I, it, I'm I'm glad it's done, and I I was happy to know that Paul went to tell Michael right away that Jamie had you know, confessed and recanted and so that Michael could drop the charges against his son. But problem is now Michael looks like an ass. It really, this whole thing, Michael was so torn about whether or not he was going to prosecute his own son. And now it turns out he was wrong. But Paul had a moment with Michael where he said, you know, Fenn didn't push Jamie off the roof, but Fenn is not innocent. And I really liked that, you know, that Paul, you know, took the opportunity to say that, like, because it could all turn around and blow up in Jamie's face. For crying out loud, Michael could turn around and prosecute Jamie for perjury, for lying under oath. They could counter sue. But, you know, there's a there's still guilt there from from Ben. He's not innocent. And same key. Paul goes to see Phyllis and tell her what Summer's role was in this. Now, Phyllis defends Summer blindly. As soon as Paul starts saying the accusations about the Britney stuff and Summer's role in this, Phyllis just is, she puts up her wall and she doesn't want to hear it. She's, her little angel couldn't have done anything. And in fact... Oh, I, I was so mad at Phyllis this week because Paul is trying to give Phyllis a heads up about what her daughter has done and hopefully point her in a direction where she can start to mold Summer in a better way so that uh, Summer doesn't turn out to be a bad kid the way Paul's kid turned out. And Phyllis looked at Paul and she did that. Ugh, she always does this, but she goes, do you, do, you know, you really want to tell me how, how to be a parent, Paul? Do you really want to go there with me? She says that a lot. Do you really want to go there with me? And she did. And it just really ticked me off because the Paul, I mean, yes, Paul did was not a good parent to Ricky, but it was a horrible circumstance. And it's not as if Paul isn't carrying guilt about that. And he certainly doesn't need you, Phyllis, to 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 rub salt in the wound. But it just bothered me how quickly Phyllis dismissed the fact that her daughter could have been involved with for any of it. And it bothers me that the blame still seems to want to naturally be on Jamie. Jamie kept a lie for, what, one day? That is supposed to outweigh months and months of bullying by Summer and Fenn? Paul's questioning was at least enough to get Phyllis to at least ask her precious little angel if she was involved in everything that went down with Jamie. And as a result of Phyllis pressuring Summer, Summer did confess to her involvement. And I don't know how you guys felt about this whole interaction. Maybe I'm having a weird reaction to it, but I was kind of annoyed by how understanding Phyllis was being. Phyllis just accepted it right away. Summer explained that, oh, she just gets, she just gets so mad, and then her face gets red, and her hands get red, and then she just does bad things. And Phyllis just kind of accepted it. Summer did something really bad, and I feel like she deserves a punishment. Like, it's not all about Summer. It's not all about how Summer feels right now. She started bullying this poor kid and it resulted in him trying to kill himself. Don't you think she deserves at least a little bit of a punishment? And instead, the whole thing just turned into this mother-daughter love fest where they're sitting on the couch snuggling up talking about Phyllis's relationship with Jack. What the heck? Like, how did that... How did we get from point A to B? The talk should have been with Summer about compassion and understanding and helping the less fortunate and 
being a leader, not a follower, and being a shepherd for other people who are in the dark, that should have been the conversation. If I found out that my kid did something like that, I would drop everything immediately. I would be reassessing myself and the example that I am setting. And I would have us both volunteering. I will tell you that right now. We would be out helping people. I would be setting an example, showing my kid how to help others, not hurt them. Not snuggling up on the couch, having mommy-daughter time. No! I mean, I can appreciate that Summer and Phyllis are repairing their relationship because it needs to happen. But Phyllis needs to stand up and focus on being a parent, not a friend. Michael has the exact opposite reaction. Michael is all about being the parent. And I don't think that Michael did anything wrong in this situation at all. Fen is a selfish brat. Right now, even at the revelation that the charges were dropped, it's all about him. The whole time, it's all about him and how his father has betrayed him. He has barely had one ounce of regret for what he did to this kid for what he did to bring this all on himself because karma is real, okay? You set this chain of events into motion and now it's boomeranging back onto you. It's called life. It's a lesson. Learn it. (laughs) Sit Finn down in front of me. I'll have a talk with him and Summer. Now, Kevin is kind of butting into this situation, which I feel like he shouldn't. At first in the week, I was kind of annoyed by Kevin inserting himself into the situation, uh, dispensing advice to Michael. And I don't know, I, I can see that Fen needs someone to talk to, and Kevin is fitting that bill. He is getting Fen to open up, and I can appreciate that. But Kevin needs to be the grown-up for once and try to help Fen see that his father loves him. Apparently, Fen spent the night at Kevin's house, which is not the answer. Like, Fen doesn't want to be around his parents right now, so he spent the night at Kevin's. It's just not the answer. Fen needs to be at home, and Kevin did bring Fen home, which he did try. Kevin did try to bridge the gap a little bit, and... There was this scene where Kevin and Michael and Finn are alone at the house, and Michael tried to have a conversation with his son. He tried to apologize and explain the situation. And what he said was, you know, I've had a very dark past. And when all of this came up for you, instead of seeing you, I saw myself in the situation and the mistakes that I have made. And he admitted, Michael admitted that he was wrong, which is, it's perfectly reasonable. It's perfectly reasonable that he felt and acted the way he did. Maybe it's just me. But, I mean, at the end of the day, Michael was wrong. He admitted that he was wrong. He explained it. He tried to bridge the gap. And that's what you do. When you're wrong, you admit it and you apologize and you move forward. What else could he possibly do? But Fen is not seeing it that way. He's a teenage boy with all his teenage boy rage. I'm sure Fen is listening to some really, uh, like, ragey music right now. Can you just see him on his iPod just... Just sitting in his room on his bed, just... You know, <laughs> maybe Fen should start playing the electric guitar or something, wearing a leather jacket <laughs> with his bad attitude. <laughs> I mean, he hates his parents right now. He hates Michael right now. Lauren stood by him. That's fine. He hates Michael right now, and he said that to Kevin, and Michael overheard it. It was very, very heartbreaking. Um, but he feels isolated. He feels. Uh, you know, like his father's a dictator or something, and he wants to run away. I hope he does. 
I, the the power ends up going out in the apartment and Fen is stuck there and Kevin's stuck there and, and it, there's the blizzard so no one's going anywhere and Kevin had a mini panic attack as soon as the lights went out which he tried to hide and act like oh no it's fine it's it's a dark space but it's not an enclosed space I'm gonna be fine and Michael's there trying to calm him down trying to calm Fen down am I the only one who feels that Michael is the only sane one here? Oh my god, you guys, <laughs> the moment of the damn week had me gasping at my screen. <laughs> oh lord, Lauren and Carmine, oh my gosh. <laughs> First of all, let me just say, we're going to really talk about this. I'm going to get a little explicit because I I have feelings about this scene. <laughs> if you don't want to hear a little bit of explicitness, just fast forward or just don't listen. But there's there are two parts to this Lauren and Carmine encounter. <laughs> First, Lauren goes to the athletic club yet again. She lets Carmine pour drinks for her yet again. This time, though, Lauren gets a little too tipsy, and Carmine, oh, he's getting off work soon. He'll just take her home. He'll give her a ride home. And he does. He takes her right to her door. Um, thanks for not letting her drive. I do appreciate that. Uh, but this whole thing is shady. When they were standing at the door, I thought he was going to kiss her. And that's so inappropriate. He's getting her drunk and making a move on her. Like, I'm, I don't know how you guys are feeling about it, but Carmine is shady to me. This is called problem, reaction, solution. Carmine has poured the drinks. He's watched the reaction and he has offered his solution to the problem. He has created this entire thing and she's falling right into this trap. I don't like it. I don't like it. But yeah, I'm strangely intrigued. Lauren has her, uh, it, she's, she's culpable in this. The next day, hungover, she goes back to the bar to see him. And she is out of her freaking mind agreeing to have dinner with him. Carmine says, this time, let's not just have drinks. Let's have drinks and dinner. A date! A date! A date! <laughs> and again, she lets him pour the drinks. I cannot even imagine what she is freaking thinking. But they are sitting there having dinner and drinks as he's, I mean, you can just see him. It is predatorial. Pour in the wine as she's drinking and laughing and escaping her problems and not real happy with her husband right now. And he starts to get intense real quick. Starts to say, I don't, you know, I, I don't want to say goodbye to you. I'm going to be here with you. And she has a moment where she realizes that things have gotten a little intense. She stands up to leave. <sighs> and Carmine comes up behind her, grabs her, pulls her into him, and I'm telling you guys, it was one of the most sexual moments that I have seen in a while. You, I watch, you gotta go back and watch it. I watched it three times. <laughs> he pulls her in, and there's this moment where I'm telling you guys, like, if it, it, it's reality, like, Carmine had a total boner, and he pushed it into her. Like, he pulls her close, and there's this moment where Lauren's surprised. Like, it was like, surprise, boner. <laughs> like, he pulled her in to feel it, if you know what I am saying, my friends. Ah, I, I don't know if the writers, I, I, or the directors, or whatever, I don't know if they did that on purpose, or if they said, you know, we're going to have an implied boner in this scene, because there was a big time implied boner in that scene. <laughs> oh my gosh, 
the that's got to be the phrase of the week. Implied boner, because it was there. <laughs> he even said to her, "Oh my god!" Even before it happened, it was like he even said to her, "Like, no, you shouldn't go. Um, you should at least wait for the plow." And then he pulled her in, like, you know, like, really like jammed it right into the, her back. Wait for the plow. It was the most, I can't even believe it. It was so freaking sexual. It was so freaking intense. And then like, as he's like got her pulled close and I'm sure she's like feeling his heat and all, you know, bulge behind her. He like puts his face into her hair and starts whispering in her ear. And she's like, oh, you're dangerous, Carmine. I cannot believe what is even freaking happening here. <laughs> I cannot even believe it. She is clearly like kind of into it like things are so bad at home and the clearly the best way to deal with things being bad at home is to have an affair oh i need a fan or something it's hot <laughs> i can feel the heat <laughs> but she knows it's wrong laura knows in her right mind that it's wrong so she's kind of she shakes him off and go and leaves walks out into the foyer he follows her. This guy, he gives me rape vibe. He is. He seems so rapey. He follows her into the foyer. And he like says, Lauren, Lauren. She turns around and he just grabs her and kisses her in public in front of like everybody at the athletic club. She's kissing a young bartender, young hunky bartender in public. Her husband's the DA. She's the owner of a major department store. You're kissing a bartender in the middle of the foyer of the athletic club? My God, Lauren. <laughs> I don't even know what to say. Like, I've said it all. What else can be said? I mean, on a, on a fundamental level... I'm like, Lauren, what the hell are you thinking? This is ridiculous. I love Michael and Lauren together. They're my favorite YNR couple. But then on this other weird, like, I can't believe this is happening moment, I'm thinking, this is kind of hot. Like, <laughs> I can't even believe that I feel the way I do because Carmine is so scumbaggy. But, like, there was a very, it was a very visceral, sexual, raw, sexual moment. Ugh. It was so, but it also so set up and so cheesy. Like the lines were, there was so much sexual undertones to everything. Carmine might have just as well come up behind her and said, you know what separates you and me? This layer of clothing. Everything else about YNR chat, the, the rest of this whole YNR chat is going to pale in comparison to what we just talked about. Like, it's just, it doesn't get any better than that. That was the most interesting part of the week. Everything else is just sideline. But <laughs> Abby is back in town this week, and it was nice to see her. I thought her outfit looked really good. She's just a really attractive, cute girl, and she brings the spice, you know, a little bit of a 20-something spice, even though she's my age, 30. But, um, I don't know. I, I just, I enjoyed her. I'm glad that she's back on the scene. She's back on the scene and she wants her old boyfriend back. She goes to Carmine. Actually, she sees Carmine and Lauren kind of canoodling. And after, you know, Carmine is alone, she confronts him and is kind of like, hey, you know, you're sort of my guy, right? And he flat out tells her, no, thanks. Says, when you left for New York, I considered our relationship over. And in fact, I've moved on. I'm, t I'm unavailable. So you can just forget it. So he blew her off big time. I don't know why she would even want him at this point. Like, Abby seems to be back with a resolve to be better than she was. She's over the naked heiress thing. She wants to be serious. Um, she went to Jack and asked him for a job at Jabot. She offers her services. And Jack was actually not having it at first. I was surprised. Jack is so all about family, and he's so guilty over what has happened with Ashley. I would have thought that he would embrace Abby right away, and he didn't. He instead put up a little resistance and said, I don't know if you're a right fit. I don't really want the naked heiress working for Jabot. And that's when Abby, you know, started giving her 
<sighs> redemption line, you know, saying, uh, you know, I learned a lot from my mom in the last couple of months about business and about uh, responsibility and mm, honesty, you know, all things that you can learn in a couple of months. <laughs> sarcasm um but she convinced him and jack eventually agreed to hire her and so she's going to be on board at jebel i think she'll make a good addition either to the cosmetics line or to the fashion line either way i think she'll be good and who knows who she'll be paired up with who knows um the one thing I did want to ask you guys about is as soon as Abby came back into town, she came back to the coffee house and she had a an interaction with Kevin that was not quite friendly. They were like, well, they were, you know, a little bit friendly, but there was an undertone of Abby dissing on Kevin. She was telling him. Like, everybody knows you're a bad investment, you know, because of his failed tag and grab and everything that's going on with the coffee house. And she was jabbing at him right in his sore spot. And I can't remember for the life of me why Abby and Kevin don't really get along. Do you guys know? Like, is it was it about Colleen? I mean, we all know Kevin tried to kill Colleen, her aunt, I guess. aunt. Um so I don't know if that's the reason why, or what, I, I I don't remember. What's the history between Kevin and Abby, and why doesn't she like him? Leave me a comment and let me know if you know. Nikki is savoring her last few moments of normalcy before the medical storyline, sickness storyline hits splashed all over the screen. Nikki did finally confide in Victoria this week. She really couldn't hold it in any longer. She told Victoria that she was sick, didn't say exactly what it was, but that she had elevated something levels and the doctors were concerned. And Victoria naturally wondered what Victor's reaction was to it. And Nikki had to confess that she has not told Victor. And in fact, she asked Victoria to keep her secret. She specifically does not want Victor to know about it. Now, <clears throat> she's also driving around in her car on Valentine's Day in the middle of this snowstorm, and she ends up crashing her car somewhere near Jack's house. So she makes her way through the snow up to Jack's house, and he takes her in. He's waiting for having a romantic um, evening with Phyllis, actually, and um, Nikki is there kind of with the flowers and the candles and everything, and they ended up kind of having a a ro- bit of a romantic moment. I mean, Valentine's Day, she's talking with him, and um, she's talking about him, uh, talking about her love with Victor to Jack, which is so ironic because Nikki and Jack were engaged and married, right? Uh, like what? Could like It's less than a year ago. And uh, the, I, I mean, ultimately, she used him because Victor was involved with Sharon, and he used her, I think, to get uh, at Victor, and also because he's lonely, so it was, it was an odd scene that, you know, Nikki and Jack are becoming close again, especially after things had gotten so rough, although, have to say, side note, Nikki looked amazing in her deep pink pantsuit and high ponytail, so adorable, I love Melody Thomas Scott, I am so, so sorry, to hear that uh, uh, Nikki revealed to uh, Jack that she has MS. That's the big reveal. That's her um, multiple sclerosis. That's the disease that she's been diagnosed with. That's the secret she's been hiding. And, you know, on another level, though, it does make sense that Nikki would confide in Jack because Nikki was there for him the entire time that he was in the hospital and uh, trying to walk again. She was there every step of the way. And so it does make sense that he would be there for her in return. But she <sighs> reveals that she has this disease She does say on a hopeful note that it's possible that it can go into remission. There are several different types, and she doesn't have the chronic type. So ultimately, when the storyline plays out, I'm sure it will either go into remission or uh, there will be a misdiagnosis. I don't know, one or the other. But 
she it's very difficult for her to reveal this to Jack because it was sort of similar to what it's going to be like when she reveals it to Victor and she says, you know, this is kind of, the, you know, the reaction Jack had was we're going to beat this thing, we're we're going to, you know, get to the doctor, we're going to do research, you know, he tries to get in and take charge of it and and you know, I mean these kind of controlling men in her life, they they want to just like beat the disease into the ground and and you know, and make it, uh, you know, just all about that in a controlling kind of way. And and Nikki reveals that that's why she doesn't want to tell Victor. She doesn't want him to try to you know, take control over it. And she even said in a very poignant moment, I don't want to be a disease. I, I want to be Nikki. You know, I, I don't want this to be the only thing people see of me. And I don't want Nikki to be just a disease either. It is heartbreaking. I'm, I'm not happy about it, to be honest with you guys. I don't, how do you feel? Like, how do you guys feel about medical storylines like this. I mean, ah, on the one hand, it helps raise awareness for the diseases, but man, on the other hand, it's such a bummer. Like, life is a bummer, and I watch soaps to escape the bummer, you know? And so I I just, I wonder how you guys feel. I I feel disappointed by this whole storyline and that that she's going and, you know, kind of an, it's sort of a negative bummer sort of direction as opposed to a strong empowerment sort of direction. <sighs> now, if Jack would have given Nikki an implied boner, that would have been a good story. Congressman Wheeler is a menacing force, I believe. He had another meeting with Victor where he told Victor that he's going to take care of Avery. Since Victor couldn't get her off that case, he's going to take care of her. What the hell does that mean? Is Avery in some kind of danger? I don't like it. I don't like that guy. And he ran into Leslie again at the athletic club. And it was very awkward because he you know, was calling her by Valerie, and he actually ran into her twice. He ran into her first at Jabot and saw that people were calling her Leslie. Didn't reveal anything, but kind of took it under his hat, you know, as probably a politician would, but then ran into her later, and Leslie confronted him, tried to, you know, kind of smooth things out, like, well, you'd understand why I wouldn't want people to know about what happened, and he, you know, was fine with it. He seemed like, you know, he wasn't going to blow her story wide open, but Victor was lurking in the shadows, twisting his mustache. He's trying to figure out what Congressman Wheeler's connection is to this case that Avery is working on because Congressman Wheeler is kind of blackmailing him and nobody blackmails Victor Newman. So he's overhearing this conversation and confronts Leslie straight up. Like she sits back down at her table and he's like, oh, I see you had a conversation with Congressman Wheeler. Why did he call you Valerie? And she's, you know, she's like, oh, you know, you know, he's a politician. He sees all kinds of people all day. He just didn't even recognize me or know my name. But Victor is putting two and two together that there's some other connection here. And he even very passive aggressively, as he walked away, called her Valerie. So Victor is on to this, uh, I don't know. I hope Victor figures it out because I want to know what the big freaking secret is. I'm surprised that no one has done a background check on Leslie. She's working in a major corporation. They, they don't do background checks there. Nobody's figured this out. How is she? How is she escaping everybody knowing that she's using a different identity? I mean, even I mean, people change their names all the time. <clears throat> That's not illegal or anything, but it's just weird. I, I mean, it would be enough for a red flag. And now Neil getting real serious, real serious with her. In fact, he's just moving too fast. He is telling her that he's in love with her. I'm sorry, but obviously he doesn't really even know her.
Dylan and Avery are so fun together. I think there was more backstory this week of, you know, flashbacks to the past of them being all happy together and taking pictures. And it was just really, really sweet. I, I thought that the two actors seemed really comfortable together. And I feel like Avery like is really coming out of her shell. I, the, like the character is really getting her chance to shine. And I enjoyed seeing her with Dylan. I'm really enjoying learning more about Dylan. He's been writing in his journal, like we're getting more reveal of what he's writing in his journal. It's really just kind of a diary. He's talking about where he is right now and, you know, his reflecting on his times in the service and, and you know, his where he is now and that he wants to stay in Genoa City. He's a nice guy. He called his dad to, <laughs> to make sure he stayed in and didn't go out in the storm. Like, it's just, it's kind of cool to get to know Dylan. I wonder if he is going to you know, maybe become an author or something, just something successful. I'm looking forward to seeing where, you know, where his character is headed. And like, just in general, I think this is a really good triangle that the Nick Avery and Dylan triangle is appealing to me. And someone made a very interesting point to me last week, which was already occurring to me that like, the reason this triangle works, and it's going to have a pull is because there are no bad guys. In this situation, I, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, Dylan hasn't done anything wrong. Avery hasn't been around long enough to do anything wrong. And Nick is probably the worst of all of them. I mean, like, but Nick, I, Nick is very mild considering all of the other characters in Genoa City. For as long as Nick has been on the show, that I have an overall positive view of him, I think says something. He's been pretty mild considering uh, for as long as he's been on. I mean, Yes, we can definitely hold it against them that they've had affairs. <laughs> we can hold it against both Avery and Nick for having affairs on Phyllis. It just depends on where you stand on that. But in general, they're decent human beings. No one in this triangle is a scumbag. So that kind of puts everybody on equal footing. And in fact, Nick went to Dylan's hotel room to confront him this week. And Nick was real honest you know, he said, I'm I'm interested in Avery. In fact, when she, as soon as she gets back into town, I'm going to tell her how I feel. And I just want you to know that I'm not going to give up easily. And pretty much Dylan said the same thing. You know, I'm not, you know, Nick was like, I'm not going to step aside. And Dylan's like, neither am I. So it was interesting because it's kind of like two nice guys who both want her, and they are making it very clear, staking their claim, and not giving up. Now, Avery doesn't know what she wants. Like, her world has been rocked. I mean, how can you compete with somebody who you thought was dead? Like, Nick, that, I mean, that's going to be a tough competition, <laughs> no matter how great he is. And it's... I'm seeing that Avery is trying to buy a lot of time with Nick. She should be there with him, like, on Valentine's Day, and she's not. She's gone to Milwaukee again to work on this case, and, you know, it's snowy, so he wants to come and get her, and she says, no, nah, I want to have some time in the car to think. And then when she gets home, he wants to come over, and she's like, no, nah, I want to have some time alone to think. So there's a lot of Avery needing to think and pushing Nick away in the process. Now, while she's at home... Dylan just decides to come over. He overheard, you know, as he was having his conversation with Nick, Avery called him and said she was coming home. So Dylan knew she was going to be there, goes over to her house to see her. And it was like old times, you know, they snapped right back into. Well, I mean, first, of course, she was it was tense, but the power goes out <laughs> to create a, a situation where he really can't leave, and the, the roads are closing, so they're snowed in together, and it was like old times between them. There was laughing and joking and sweetness and trying some, eating some soup and remembering other soups that she's made. It was, it was cute. Now, meanwhile, Nick is alone at the club. On Valentine's Day, not exactly where he thought he would be on Valentine's Day. And this drunkard takes over Avery's reserved booth. There's a booth reserved at uh, the underground that's only for Avery. <laughs> 
and this drunk guy is sitting in it, and Nick confronts him and says, hey, you know, this is a reserved booth, and the drunk guy's like, that's okay, I'm gonna sit in this booth. Who is it reserved for? This Avery? Oh, she sounds like a real sweet piece, which, to me, I thought, oh my gosh, Nick, you need to throw him out on his ass. I hope you have a bouncer because this guy needs to go. He's making a lot of assumptions, talking about, oh, she sounds like she's real sweet. But it comes off kind of, I don't know, to me came off kind of rude and just like sassy and sarcastic and everything. But Nick, Nick is a good guy. Nick sits down and he talks to him and like asks the guy about his life. Like rather than just throwing him out and getting all ticked off, Nick takes the time to inquire and get to know this guy a little bit. And he even seeing that the guy is drunk, tells him to just go into the back room. There's a cot. Sleep it off. That's really, really sweet. Uh, Nick, he is a good guy at the end of the day. And the guy started talking about his, you know, he's lamenting uh, his Valentine's Day that he's spending alone. And he's saying that there was a woman that he really loved and he didn't go for it. He regrets that he just didn't go for it. And he could have, you know, just really gone for it. (laughs) And he's telling Nick, like, you need to just take what you want, man. You know, you need to be brave and just not hold back. And Nick is hearing this whole time and he's realizing that Avery's in town. He wants to give her her space, but at the same time, he doesn't want to be a pushover he wants her so I I, at the uh, that was pretty much the end of Friday's show and I'm thinking how much you want to bet that Nick will take this advice and decide to go brave the storm go over to Avery's house and find her sitting there cozy with Dylan Okay, my podcast friends. Oh, I hope you guys enjoyed this week's show as much as I did. <laughs> it was drama filled. I I tell you, I had to like watch Friday's show was amazing. I was watching it and then I had to like pause and rewind and get up and take a moment for myself. It was it was overwhelming almost. <laughs> But I really liked it. I really like YNR right now. There's a lot of new um, uh, new storylines and things kind of are finally getting on track. And ooh, 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 ooh. whether I like it or not, it's definitely chat worthy. And that's what I'm looking for. I am not... As I'm not too much of a purist that I have to have certain couples together, then you know, or, or certain things have to be certain ways. You know, I'm I'm looking for the drama. I'm looking for the good story. I want to be shocked, and I was shocked this week. <laughs> are you Are you guys feeling it? You gotta call in and um, leave me a comment, or find a way to contact me and let me know what you're thinking about the show. It helps me tremendously to know, like, have some point of reference and checking myself against other people. So you can contact me a couple of different ways. The telephone number, if you would like to leave a voicemail, is area code 309-588-4569. That's within the U.S. So if you're abroad, it's country code 1. Or you could go to my blog. You could leave me a comment uh, on the posting for this week's show. And you can also see the video portion if you're into that. The web address is yrchatblog.blogspot.com. I probably need to just get a domain or something. That's so much to to say. I don't know. Someday. Someday I'll get a proper website. Uh, or you can also just send me an email. That's easy. The email address is yrchat at live.com. I want to say a quick shout out to my friend Sharita. You called me and left a voicemail last week, but it was after I already recorded in the podcast. And um, so I didn't have a chance to put it into the podcast, but I did hear it. Do love you. Love your comments as always. Love comments from all of you guys. So please don't hesitate to find a way to contact me and let me know what you think. I love it and cherish it. Totally, truly, I do. Okay, well, shoot, can't think of anything else that needs to be said. So I guess I'll wrap it up and uh, I will see you guys next week. We'll chat again about our favorite show. I love you. Bye.